This is a Clark University podcast. You know, in the wake of Columbine, all across the country, schools started doing lockdown drills and trainings on how to survive an active shooter. Those things could save lives, but those are not preventing the attacks. Those are what you do after you've already got a, an armed intruder in the building. That's reactive. The proactive piece is threat assessment, and schools are still lagging behind in having threat assessment teams in their districts. Well, the best way to prevent attacks is for the students to report what they know, because typically they know more than anybody else in the school. So if students are going to report things to adults, the adults need to be trained in how to investigate and evaluate those threats. Peter Langman knew he would pursue a career in psychology after graduating from Clark University in 1984. But he didn't expect his work to focus on school shootings. Ten days after the deadly attack at Columbine High School in 1999, a boy was admitted to the hospital because he was considered a Columbine-type risk. He had a hit list. He was engaging in some strange and disturbing behavior. Of course, right after Columbine, schools were on high alert. At the time, there was really no literature on school shootings. Columbine was far from being the first, but you know, it takes a while for research to be carried out and published. So, you know, there's a time lag. There'd been a lot of school shootings the prior academic year, actually in 97, 98. So I did what I could with that 16-year-old boy in terms of clinical assessments and risk assessment. And not long after that, there was another potential school shooter who came to the hospital. And then another one. And there was a steady trickle, not a whole lot, but all too often I was sitting with potential school shooters, potential mass murderers in my office. So I was studying the kids I was working with, but also studying the cases of school shootings that happened across the nation. And eventually, you know, I thought, I think I'm seeing things that I'm not reading about in the literature. Everyone at first was looking for a profile, you know, give us a profile, a checklist, so we know what to look for. But what struck me was not how similar the kids were to each other, but how different they were. Langman has researched what signs to look for to prevent a school shooting and the different types of perpetrators who carry out these attacks. He sat down with us not long after a gunman fatally shot 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. In the wake of another shooting, Langman continues his focus on prevention. I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change. Well, what came out of my research was that there's really three different pathways to school shootings, three different types of perpetrators. And what's confusing is they all end up doing what looks like the same thing. They commit an attack at their school, but how they got to that point and why they're doing it is very different. The first is what I call the psychopathic school shooter. When I use the term, I'm talking about people who are extraordinarily narcissistic. Their lives revolve around them. There's no empathy for other people. There's no real concern for anybody else. If you're really narcissistic, you don't like limits on your behavior. And if you don't care about other people, if there's no empathy, then there's no reason not to hurt other people. And if you don't care about other people, if there's no empathy, then there's no reason not to hurt other people. They may actually be sadistic, meaning that they get a real sense of excitement, a, a thrill from having the power to hurt and kill people. The second type is what I call the psychotic school shooter. And this is where significant mental illness or you know, mental health issues come into play. 
So the psychotic school shooters tend to be schizophrenic or schizotypal personality disorder, which is a much less well-known diagnosis than schizophrenia, less severe generally. But what these diagnoses have in common is that people are not fully functioning in reality. So what does that mean? Well, they may be hearing voices. The voices may tell them to kill themselves and or kill other people. They may have paranoid delusions. They may think their lives are in danger from a conspiracy, a plot to hurt or kill them, so they have to strike first. They tend to struggle a lot with social relationships and with emotions. They may be painfully aware that there's something wrong with them, and they look around at their peers, and it seems like everyone else is normal. Everyone else is happy and having a great time, and then there's me. So they may lash out, not at anyone who's hurt them, but at the people who are living the lives that they wish they could live themselves. Now, when we talk about the psychopathic and the psychotic shooters, they typically come from more or less stable, intact families. Of course, no family's perfect, and there may be a divorce or a separation, but no major dysfunction. That all changes when you get to the traumatized school shooter, my third type. These kids come from severely violent and dysfunctional homes. In every case, at least one, and sometimes both parents have a substance use issue, whether alcoholism or drug addiction. At least one or both parents has a criminal history, sometimes to the point of incarceration. There's physical abuse in the home. Sometimes there's sexual abuse, either in the home or in the community or in a foster home that these kids end up in. So there could be chronic instability on top of the actual trauma of physical and sexual abuse. So imagine having to start all over again in a new home, a new neighborhood, maybe a new school, no continuity with your friends, no continuity with your education, just ongoing stress. Langman has discovered certain behaviors by adolescents are warning signs that they could potentially carry out a school shooting. This is where education is needed, he says, so that peers and adults can report warning signs. You know, when a kid writes a list of people he wants to kill, um, it could be a joke. Kids could just make a list of people they don't like, <clears throat> but if they call it hit list, kill list, etc., that raises it to you know, a significant level of concern. It doesn't mean they're going to act on that, but you have to investigate it and take it seriously. I had one teenager in my office who had contemplated seven different methods of mass murder at his school, and he calmly explained all seven to me. He went through one method after another. And I don't remember at this point how all of that came to light that got him sent to the hospital, but he was very open about planning. Teachers and administrators need to know the warning signs, but the students really need to know them and what to do with them. When it comes to what's called leakage, when kids leak their intentions, that happens in a variety of ways. Sometimes they simply announce it. They will tell their friends, hey, I'm going to commit a school shooting. They sometimes brag about it. They think it's cool. They say, I'm going to be on the news. It's going to be big. This is exciting. So they have to share it with their friends. When it's that obvious, people don't take it seriously. In fact, in many cases, peers don't take it seriously. And that's maybe the biggest obstacle to getting these things reported. Langman says school districts need to make simple and accessible ways for kids and parents to come forward. While the internet is a helpful resource in that sense, the massive amounts of information available online can also be a detriment. Schools need to make it as easy as possible for 
kids and parents and everyone else to come forward with what they know. So there should be multiple avenues of communication, whether it's a text, an app, a, a, a button on the school's website, there should be ways to make it easy for people to come forward. What we see a lot of is school shooters research previous attackers and they study the perpetrators and sometimes they start using language writings or sayings from previous attackers they start quoting them or imitating them or dressing like them the internet makes all of that information available and another angle is students then post things either on websites or on social media that sometimes are warning signs so that's a positive thing that we can sometimes prevent attacks through social media or the internet because sometimes students are pretty open about things. People can be quick to cite mental illness as the cause of school shootings, but Langman feels people use that term without defining it. You know, we have to be careful about not contributing to the stigma associated with mental illness because most people who are mentally ill never become violent. Most people who are psychotic, psychopathic, or traumatized never kill anybody. So we have to put in some cautions and realize there's nuance to this issue. It's very complicated because your girlfriend broke up with you or you got a bad grade from a teacher or you got suspended for misconduct. Wanting to kill people over ordinary things is not common. So to me, something is wrong. There's room to address psychological issues. However, when people talk about mental illness, they're usually not talking about that. And this is where the conversation gets confusing. My impression is people may confuse mental illness with insanity. So mental illness or schizophrenia or psychosis are clinical terms, psychiatric terms. They may involve loss of touch with reality, hallucinations or delusions. Insanity, in contrast, is a legal term it's not a psychiatric term. And in a legal sense, insanity means someone who's so impaired that they are not aware that what they're doing is wrong, morally wrong or legally wrong. Insanity to the point that they don't know what they're doing is wrong, then virtually no mass killers, school shooters or otherwise, meet that criterion. Because even if they're psychotic, they almost always know that what they're doing is considered wrong. That's why they try not to get caught, to avoid the police, where they may take police response time into their planning because they know that what they're doing is a crime that will bring the police to the scene. In that sense, mass killers are almost never insane, even if they are psychotic. But I think that distinction is pretty much never addressed in the coverage of these uh, attacks. Langman has gotten to know families that lost children in the attacks at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. You know, it's just devastating. I've been to um, many events where they've spoken about what happened on that day, um, the impact of losing a child. It, it's just um, devastating. Some of them have started school safety organizations. There's a number of organizations that came out of both Sandy Hook and Parklands, started by parents who lost someone who said, I'm gonna devote my life to trying to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else. They're very in inspiring as people. They have tremendous courage and it's hard to understand how they can do that. But 
I give them incredible amount of credit and uh, I have so much respect for them. Knowing that attacks can be prevented helps Langman continue his work. I don't feel hopeless. It's very disheartening and discouraging that we're not doing better as a country. There's a lot of reasons for hope because as I travel the country doing trainings on school safety, I meet so many people dedicated to school safety who are doing such good work. We just need more of that. Also reasons for hope, so many potential school shootings and other attacks don't happen because someone sees the warning signs and reports them and we tend not to hear about them because a non-event often doesn't make the news. Well, my latest book is called Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike. And it's the culmination of years of research into the perpetrators and their pre-attack behaviors, the warning signs that were seen but not followed up on, the warning signs that were available but were missed, as well as incidents in which warning signs were seen and reported and the attacks were prevented. This is my best effort to give people the information they need, whether educators, law enforcement officers, mental health professionals, what should people look out for? What do we need to know? How do we identify these kids before they show up at the school with a gun? Last week, President Joe Biden called for the ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines passed in 1994 to be reinstated. We need to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. And if we can't ban assault weapons, then we should raise the age to purchase them from 18 to 21. Strengthen background checks. Enact safe storage law and red flag laws. Repeal the immunity that protects gun manufacturers from liability. Address the mental health crisis. These are rational, common-sense measures. Challenge Change is produced by Melissa Hansen and Andrew Hart for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three. Clark! <laughs>